Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you're listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Super excited to have this dope conversation with my guest today. She is the founder of I Can Help. Today I have with me Dieza Dorsey. Hi, Dieza. Hello, hello. How you doing? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for allowing me this opportunity. Yes. Um, I'm just excited for all the things you're going to bring to my listeners. So I'm going to start with you, like I do all my guests, and ask, okay. what is your labor of love? <laughs> so I have heard some of your previous podcasts, and I was like, what in the world is my labor of love? How do I condense that? And, um, you know, to be as authentic as possible. I feel like I help create opportunities for people. Um, I'm very much a problem solver and an advocate for justice. So I kind of feel like I merged that energy <laughs> to create opportunities. Um, for example, I, along with ICANN Health, I um, co-lead a group called Black Nurse Network, where our goal is to ensure that Black nursing students graduate from nursing programs, basically. Um, we know that um, black individuals make up only like 11% of the graduates in nursing programs, only 12% of the nursing workforce. And like, we just, we need more black representation. So, um, I'm helping to create opportunities, um, for these students and ultimately for our community. Yes. So I'm sure we'll get into the multitude of ways in which you do that, but where did this passion this labor of love of creating opportunities come from? Where would you say that's rooted in your life? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I kind of feel like a lot of it is just natural Aries me. Um, just that, <laughs> that energy. Um, I've, um, you know, I've been in, lots of I've had lots of opportunities to to grow and find myself um particularly in college just being able to like figure out like who in the world I am and um you know that that was just a a really good experience because it was a lot of who I thought I was and who I brought to college and then who I really became when I graduated so um I found that you know, during that, during those times, I was able to really, you know, um, polish or at least help polish the, the labor of love. So you did all that in undergrad, huh? Impressive. <laughs> I'm like, girl, shoot. Again, <laughs> that would come a lot later for me. It's been a journey. <laughs> but I'm sure it's one that continued. So absolutely. Let's just talk for a minute about the importance of opportunity. So when you say that your labor of love is creating opportunities, what is it about? And well, one, how are we defining opportunity? Mm. And once we recognize how we're defining it, what is the importance of it that makes you commit and dedicate so much of your life to making sure other people have it? Ooh, <laughs> your natural questions. <laughs> Okay, let me dissect a little bit. So um, let's start with the defining. Um, you know, truth is, I feel like um, kind of growing up in your in the uh, black household, I was kind of told like, this is pretty much what you're gonna do. This is kind of how you're gonna do it. And I am such a rebel in that sense. Like, I do not like being told what to do, how to do it, when to do it. <laughs> And I'm thankful that now, like, uh, my life doesn't really look that way. I'm able to, like, create my own path. I'm able to kind of be my authentic self. Um, and that's what I want for everybody else, you know, as much as I can have it and or help it. 
And I know that um, because of life circumstances or because of systemic racism or because of just all the things that a lot of people's opportunities, which I guess can also be termed as like options, feel kind of limited. So um, one thing, like I, I, I need to have my options. Like I can't, I just don't work well when I'm being told this is it, this is how to do it. Like I said, you know, so um, being able to be free, freedom, honestly, is like, that is just something that is in me that uh, has to be, has to be translated outside of me. Um, And I just want to, like I said, I just want to be able to help other people foster that type of either life or environment or whatever it is. I love that so much. Um, opportunity translated as options. Um, and I think of how many times in life I felt like I didn't have options, but how many times in my life I didn't recognize that options were an option, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Um, and so there is, I think, freedom in even just telling people that they can have options, even mm-hmm. if they don't know what to do with those options or which ones they are. So this feels random, but I'm gonna go there. So something that came up. It's something I've been looking at all weekend. And I was talking with Jay about earlier, but mm-hmm. I'm, I've been off socials personally for a while, but occasionally like I'll hop back on, just kind of see what's going on. And I'm mm-hmm. from Detroit. And mm-hmm. apparently this past weekend, uh, there's a section of downtown Detroit. It's an island. It's called Belle I grew, like I spent so much of my childhood on Belle mm-hmm. And I think now it's like state run, all this stuff, but there was this thing called the giant slide. That as a kid, so many people in my generation and even like a generation older, generation younger will remember going to Belle Isle and going down this, this thing called the giant slide. You get into like the little knapsack um, mm-hmm. things and slide down. It was yellow when we were a kid and all this stuff. So they mm-hmm. reopened <laughs> the giant slide. Oh, wow. And apparently like all the memes and all the stories and stuff were kind of like, how this is not the the giant slide of our childhood and you see things of kids like flying like it was almost like dangerous okay I saw something like that okay right it's (laughs) probably circulating this way through the country like all this stuff and what was interesting to me about it though was some of the commentary that came up around it that felt Oh, it's this age old commentary that irks my soul, to be honest. And Mm -hmm. it's this notion that kids these days is soft. You know, Mm -hmm. we was, you know, we, we went down there, we burnt up our elbows. We dead, 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 dead. You know what I mean? These kids. (laughs) So that's one thing because we've been hurt and traumatized and not cared for and not safe. Why would we provide safety and care for our young people? They soft. And I'm just like, (laughs) who if we don't check our Mm -hmm. trauma is killing me Mm -hmm. the other the other part is people are like making it so this is an example and then another example I don't know if you've seen some videos that circulate where uh adults will have young people try to use a rotary phone and it is so (laughs) funny to watch them like we don't know how this works right But then there's Mm -hmm. commentary that arises around things like that. So the giant slide, the rotary Mm -hmm. phone, that they're stupid. Mm. That it just, it's common sense. No, it's not. Mm -mm. So this this assumption that people should know how to do what they haven't been taught Mm -hmm. just because their age is a certain thing or their body is a certain height. It just, they do. They irk my soul because they are rooted in, in so much of the same things that um systems of oppression are rooted mm. and create hierarchies based on withheld knowledge withheld opportunities and withheld learning and and so as i hear you talk about opportunity those things came up for me because on one hand they are creating an experience from the past mm-hmm. thinking it's going to hold the same symbolism mm. for this new generation that it did for us thing is going to be done the same way. And when it's not, instead of rallying around and saying, what does support look like? What does safety look like? What does educating you look like? It's like, let's talk crap about them because they don't know how to do something. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. anyway, that, that just came up for me because it feels like culturally relevant in the time, but you're saying 
how do I help people recognize that there are opportunities and options out there that are not always presented to them? Mm-hmm. And even when they are, I would imagine, let's say any field, but we'll take nursing because that's where you're mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. I can imagine people go like, oh yeah, we'll let them in, but we won't teach them how to actually mm-hmm. succeed. Do mm-hmm. you find that? Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah. Um, so um, it's it's definitely, a, in my opinion, so I like to learn from what I call the old school nurses because the foundation um, was set and um, they they were able to do a lot of things that, you know, we as newer nurses, I don't know if I'm allowed to even say that, I'm not going to tell you my age, but because of how long I've been, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say it anymore, but um, for instance, I was in a place where um, paper charting was, you know, kind of going away, but I still learned how to paper chart. And then I'm also part of the age that's doing all the computer charting. And so kind of what you were talking about, I, I have heard some of the older nurses say like, back in our day, we paper charted y'all, da 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 but then there's still some... Um, some um they don't there's some lack of desire to to want to learn how to do some of the newer things too so it's a really interesting place to be and so I appreciate that as I'm helping some of the newer students and you know um some of the students period um I appreciate being able to bridge those two and say hey do you have appreciation for where we came from and this is you know, where we're going or where we are and learning from that too. Um, so I think um, to your point of like the, the, the old, the trauma, it's like having a new mindset and being open to newer things, um, but still being able to appreciate the things of the past. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I think that I feel like that's especially important in, in nursing. Yeah. And I think across the, across the board, you know, Mm -hmm. something else that you're talking about is, is there is a generational divide. And I do think that a bridge between those would be helpful. I find myself often sitting in what I call the middle. I do. I Mm -hmm. find myself in the middle of many things because of one, I do, I will consider my ability to be able to see the various sides of things And I think uh, an above average objective way is part of a gift, but it's one that I have to continue to work at that I see both sides. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that there are those who come from what we'll call the older generation, but like you, I'm like, wait a minute. I think that might be me now. Am I the older (laughs) generation? (laughs) So what, you know, but I think about, um, how hard a lot of generations the generation before us maybe two before us Mm -hmm. worked from a very just work standpoint Mm -hmm. what is considered the technological boom for a lot of our generation and future and generations after us was convenience in a way Mm -hmm. so at this point Mm -hmm. my children only know a digital age Mm -hmm. So there is an embedded convenience in technology because that's all they've ever known. Um, Sometimes I think people who are born in and have grown in that generation, you know, I had Prodigy as a kid where you had to type in the executive code to get online. Not everyone had computers. I'm talking very beginning of AOL. You know, (laughs) I played Oregon Trail on a floppy B disc. Like this is what I'm now also (laughs) having this conversation with you through distance, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I think about people like my mother, my father, even if they, my father's passed, but even if they want to take advantage of the convenience that technology has today, it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. Like there are whole skill sets and ways that their brains have been formed for decades that then this shift makes it very difficult. So sometimes I think they're looked at as if they're resistant to come into the new world as mm-hmm. one of defiance and think no part of it is their whole brain has been developed mm-hmm. around very physical we write it you know mm-hmm. when I went into restaurant management when I was straight out of uh, college 
Mm-hmm. Them tickets was handwritten, baby. It was a whole system. Circle this. Like it was almost like reading hieroglyphics. You knew how to do it. <laughs> now everything you just punch into a computer, it pops up mm-hmm. there. That's just another example of like, but people who had been servers for 20 years up to that point and knew that all of a sudden you like, oh, this is gonna be easier. Mm-hmm. Just touch this. And they like easier. Mm-hmm. I've spent two decades. This is easy for me. So I do think there needs to be some respect around what that transition looks like but also this technology we know is good when it works and then when it don't and then it you didn't have people with data breaches back in the day like we do now (laughs) all your business out there because somebody hit a keystroke on the back end of some computer because mm-hmm. they didn't have to rummage through a file room and file cat, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I do think I agree with you that like putting some respect on all the generations would be mm-hmm. a very helpful foundation for that bridge and learning from each other could be very helpful. So one of the, oh, mm-hmm. one of the things um, uh, in the realm of healthcare, um, for instance, I, I usually I, I, the generation that I'm working with, um, I work with people with prediabetes and diabetes type two, and a lot of them are um, older adults. And um, we talk about, you know, some of the, um, some of their, so I have a a physical copy of a, um, of a self-management tool that I use. And a lot of the times I get asked, um, so have you made this digital yet? Are you going to make this digital? And of course, my thoughts are eventually to make it digital, but there's something I enjoy about keeping it a physical copy because the people that I work with are not interested in digital. They don't want to have another password, a username, storing that, logging into this. They and they are paper and pen, like myself, honestly, write down, you know, create a notebook, that type of thing. And so um, I do try to make sure, kind of like you talked about being in the middle, I kind of try to make sure that I am capturing that audience because there's a decline in um, uh, um, feelings of self and feeling like you can actually do it um, when it comes to diabetes self-management. People feel like you know, this, I have to get on this digital app and have to do that in a third. And they feel less desire to actually work toward their goals because of that barrier, which feels like a barrier. Um, and I find more success when I'm in person um, or when I'm able to be on the phone. Um, and definitely when I'm able to hand somebody a physical copy of of the um, the tool. So, um, but then again, you know, I have um, my younger audience too, where I'm like, you know, we can do virtual things or whatever the case, but just being able to, you know, there's so many, um, there's so many people that want everything right now, you know, right away, the convenience factor, like you said, which is understandable. I'm definitely a convenience person too. <laughs> so at this point in my life, I will pay for convenience. So I totally understand. Um, but at the same time, just like, you know, being able to, um, again, appreciate and to be able to meet people where they are. It's really important, especially in healthcare. Especially in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And I I love it, especially like in what you said. I realized that when you said meet people where they are, I feel like like that's that's a genuine statement. And how you just described your use of paper and pen versus these digital things was such a great example of that. But it made me realize like how often when people say meet people where they are, that I think there's a negative connotation to that. Like people yeah. are below somewhere. Oh, I got to go and meet them where they at instead of being like, no, genuinely, like mm-hmm. we don't have to assign a value judgment to that good or bad, right or wrong, but just meeting people where mm-hmm. they are. And I think about my mom, how many times she's literally called me. Do you know my password to so-and-so? I'm like, man, mm-hmm. I barely know my own password. <laughs> so no, I don't. And the frustration around technology um, that happens. And so, yeah, like I feel that I feel that a lot. So I would love for us to turn this conversation now to talk specifically about I can health and all the things that, you know, like, let's talk a little bit about the origin story of I can health and what you do, and then get into what we were talking about uh, when we first met, which was just dope. And it's like, how do we talk about how we decolonialize? or decolonize, Mm -hmm. (laughs) decolonize um, so much of the the healthcare that we are being um, 
given in a way that doesn't always support our culture, our background, and the experiences we have. So please tell us about I Can Health. Yeah, sure. Um, so I Can Health, um, I started in 2019 um, as a formal company. Um, but a little bit backstory is in 2013, I worked for a company um, where um, a company, a, a hospital, I'm sorry, organization doing care management, nursing care management. And I worked with people with diabetes um, and all types of comorbidities, actually. Um, but the one that stood out to me the most was diabetes because that that one is is a is is very manageable. Um, any chronic illness, I will say, is difficult, um, but that one is manageable and pre diabetes. Um, and so, I found myself like passing out, you know, pamphlets or print things off the internet when I was talking to my patients, and I'm like, I got frustrated because I'm like, this is not consolidated. I want to be able to have a conversation hand them one thing that might, you know, that's easy for us to follow and it helps with goal setting and adherence. So um, like I said, in the beginning, I'm a problem solver. So I said, I'm gonna just create what I need. So that was the birth of the creation of the ICANN manual. Um, but then I took some time off. I born and raised Cincinnati and I said, I need to get out of here. I need to see some other things. So I did some travel nursing um, all over the country. Great experience, but never lost that desire to still create that um that material so speeding things up I finished it um and I said now what <laughs> um and so I created I can health and the goal with that was because a lot of the times working with patients I heard I can't do this I can't eat sugar I can't do that and I'm like you can you can you can and, and it's my goal to remind you you can so the I can the goal of I can health is we want to remind you you can and empower you to reach your optimal state of health in a holistic fashion mind, body, and spirit. And again, our current initiative was people with prediabetes and diabetes type two. I love that. Like, I was like, okay, I can help. And you know, it's a little eye too. So mm -hmm. I'll be rolling my eyes because I'm kind of anti-apple. Don't have, you know, it just feels like, you know, oh. I see the eye and I'm just like, oh, okay. But as we were talking and I'm like, oh, wow, like I can. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely the thing that I can say I hear and I say when it comes mm -hmm. something to health like oh I can't do that no more mm -hmm. oh, I can't I can't have the things that I enjoy anymore I can't do that or I have to mm -hmm. um and so I can versus I have to feels very empowering to me and going back to opportunity as option option as choice choice is autonomy mm -hmm. really being able to create a space for people feel that they can have control of their health. You um, nailed it. So, yeah. You absolutely nailed it. That's exactly where my heart is, is to um, help people, like I said, empower people to know. Um, one of the things I talk, talk a lot about with my patients is how to have an effective conversation with your healthcare provider. Too often I feel we're, you know, it's 30 minutes. That's a lot. That's not a lot of time. 15 to 30, to be honest, depending on what kind of appointment it is. You're probably getting hit with terms that you're not so sure what they're saying all the time. So I always encourage to take somebody with you. Um, and then, you know, what are some questions that you want to ask before you even get in there? Write those down. Take a, you know, notebook and paper um, so that you can have an empowered, healthy conversation because ultimately, it's in your hands. It's your health, you know? So I want to remind people, like, it is, it is, we have the power to, you know, help create these goals. We don't have to just be told you need to lose X, Y, and Z. We always hear this. You've got to lose a certain amount of weight. No, actually, first of all, BMIs are not, um, they're not with the black body in mind. Our bodies look and are built differently. And, you know, so just, being able to um, keep keep ourselves first and foremost, empower and advocate for ourselves. That's really huge um, in what I do with my with my patients. So as you're talking, what come to mind? What comes to mind for me is my father, who um, had a litany of health concerns and issues. He was pretty much sick my whole life, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and everything from chronic emphysema to um, COPD. He had two triple bypasses, high blood, you know, the, the whole nine. 
So frequenting a doctor's office, like going to the doctor was a thing that like was all the time. Mm -hmm. But I'm also thinking about, which I don't think I have before, how much time he spent at doctors. He did. Mm -hmm. I don't know that he ever had a doctor who reflected his racial identity. Mm -hmm. My father was a black man born in 1939 in the South. Um. And while he graduated from high school, what is a high school education for a black man in the South mm-hmm. at that time? He okay. went to the military, came out. This is not an indictment on my father's intelligence. He was extremely intelligent. He was an orator. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more I grow older, the more I realize how much like him I am mm-hmm. in so many awesome mm-hmm. ways. And mm-hmm. I realize some of those limitations. So when you say take someone with you, I was the someone with him, even when I was a child. Mm-hmm. And there was no effort made to talk to my father like he was a non-medical professional, mm-hmm. right? You know what I mean? So there's also that element. So when I think about the relationship my father had to other races based on his lived experience, then he goes in and there's an automatic element of hierarchy within the medical mm-hmm. system. You go in And this, and it's not just with him. This is when I think about so many people, they happen to be older, like my parents' generation, but what will happen? This happens with my mother still. You go to the doctor, you sit with this person who doesn't reflect your identity, is talking at you, not with you. Mm -hmm. And you nod your head and you say, okay. And then you come home. The amount of medications my mother doesn't take that is prescribed Mm -hmm. to her. The amount of things she does not follow that she's told Mm -hmm. she needs to do. So I think there is an autonomy that people utilize, but they don't speak up about that. So there are times when something is happening with her and my thought of, well, did you tell the doctor about that? And it's like, sometimes she ain't telling the doctor because of all the things she ain't been telling the doctor for 10 years. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So it's like, Mm -hmm. they build these relationships of I'm going to stay in compliance with visits. I'm going to go, but it's not an authentic experience. I'm not really paying attention to what you're saying. There Mm -hmm. is a belief that I know my body better than yours. And I'm going to execute that, but I'm not going to communicate that with you. And for me, I think the biggest things is now there's this huge discrepancy between medical record and what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then that gets also now when some of these more severe things happen medically and you go in the medical record is reflecting a a decade's worth of medical history that is not actually the history. And it's not that the people who are not adhering are because they want to do what they want to do and they're doing all this quote unquote bad stuff and eating what they want. Mm -hmm. But they're saying this medical plan doesn't reflect what I know of my body, but there is definitely this divide where I think there's a true lack of comfort um, Mm -hmm. and safety sometimes in Mm -hmm. being able to express that to medical professionals. You know that again. Um, yeah, which is so it's it's amazing when I um I don't do bedside nursing currently, but when I would do when I would step into a room and introduce myself as the nurse for the day in a room um of somebody that looks like me. And the 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 relief that I saw just come over the patient or as um, so you my nurse. Oh, I'm so glad you go, girl. You got you, you know, you know, they ask about school and they're enthused. Um, that made me feel so good because I'm like, it's kind of like a rapport that's already built that like we've known each other for a while and we've only known each other for the two minutes of me saying, hi, I'm going to be your nurse today. How are you doing? Um, we talk about things that you know, don't have anything to do with the med- whatever we're doing in the hospital. I'm asking about family. I'm, you know, I'm literally genuinely curious just about the individual that we have, re- we have, re- you know, I could talk about my grandmother did X, Y, and Z. Oh, my grandmother did too. Or, you know, different things like that. And there's that, you know, trust. I think that that's kind of like automatically kind of, you know, built because I look like them and I can relate to them. And, you know, that's exactly why we're doing what we do with Black Nurse Network is because we need more of that cultural competency. Um, We need people that are going to advocate on our behalf and that we trust that will advocate for us on our behalf. Um, We've been told that Black women don't experience pain like other 
you know, um, ethnicities. We, our bodies have been used um, in experimental forms. Um, there's been so many different things that have happened over time that have, has contributed to the lack of trust on top of being um, uh, pushed out of nursing schools, uh, being uh, not allowed in certain spaces to, you know, at the table to have conversations, to advocate for ourselves and our people. So there's, there's so many different things that when I, when I walk in as the nurse of the day to an, a family that looks like me, I represent a lot. And um, I'm able to foster conversations. Um, I'm able to, um, again, advocate for for my patients, as well as when we're talking food choices. When I work with people with diabetes, um, you know, I, I understand the way we eat as a culture. And so I, I'm not going to offer certain solutions that I know just aren't going to happen. <laughs> so just being able to speak the language, you know, my family, you know, my family, cook greens with uh, uh, pork and, you know, nothing. I'm not saying anything that you shouldn't eat pork. I'm just saying I know how my family did things and watching people transition now to to turkey or sometimes without any meat, you know, but that's been an evolution. That's not something that was just like, oh, let me just try turkey today. No. So um, just knowing, you know, how we do things culturally and being able to um, provide um options um that I think are realistic for for our for our people and so so much of what you just said to the listeners who followed the podcast this feels like a natural extension of the conversation I was having with Dr. Ebony a few episodes ago where we talked about it was called why the stigma and while Mm. we were talking about the stigma around mental health and therapy the extension of this is the medical field is untrustworthy to the black body And we have to say that, like, because when we don't, then there is a narrative around um, opposition and a lack of care, you know, about themselves, I think, around our community when someone doesn't want to go to the doctor or they're trying to do, you know, all of these things. So before holistic, natural things became... um, understood as popular culture and people start charging a lot of money for it please believe our people have been digging in the earth to find solutions since it isn't because i mean when we were brought to this country you think they gave us proper medical care we weren't even human okay i wish i could see the face she making like right girl okay so the to be able when i need people to understand what the black body and other marginalized brown bodies have withstood in this country Mm without the support of the Mm -hmm. medical field because we Mm -hmm. weren't even considered human enough to receive it Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so there is so much that goes into that when I think about the lack of trust when I think about you know my father would have been the same age as the Tuskegee Airmen Mm. okay and all of the things that happened throughout that process so his participation but subsequent or simultaneous distrust for the medical field I watched that go hand in hand there was a part of him that realized that you and, and some of it was choice he was a chronic smoker but he also worked in the plan like so it was like all of these different things mm-hmm. that were happening and I think it's so important for us to make sure that we mention that that the work you're doing and helping people say I can't I mean I can mm-hmm. comes on the heels of generation after generation after generation saying you can't and that's across every aspect of their life and so I I find it extremely empowering and I can only imagine the relief when Mm -hmm. a nurse walks in who the person responsible to making for making sure that my needs are met today understands me on a level that I can't explain Mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that breeds comfort and 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 so the fact that you are helping more people of color more black nurses make their way from the desire to help in this way to actually making it into the hospitals is beautiful my question is all right we are successfully helping black nurses get out of school and into the hospitals. But I can only imagine that those systems aren't very inviting to the to the very few 
nurses who are new to that. So what's that experience like from your perspective Mm -hmm. for entering nurses of color and black nurses? So the nursing world in general right now is, is a little bit difficult um, in the, in the specifically in the um, patient care settings. Um, And it's, it's, it's COVID just kind of built on that. It was already tough if I'm honest. Um, And then in different parts of the country you have, um, for instance, when I worked out in California, I was actually given 30 minute lunch break. It was like mandated versus back in the Midwest. If I get a break out of my 12 hour shift, like, you know, I'd be lucky to, to really be able to sit down for 30 minutes. So that, that stress, I would just say as a nurse is already just there. You're responsible for somebody's entire life for that 12 hour shift. And you're not paid enough, if I'm honest, like, <laughs> to be responsible for somebody's life. So that's already one thing just in general. And then put on top of that, um, I I know you're aware, these new diversity equity initiatives, I start seeing these till 2020 and beyond. And we're only 2022 right now. So, and then even the um, American Nurses Association, they just now in 2022 put out a statement of apology for um, basically being racist and excluding Black nurses from entering the, the organization um, in 2022, Lashonda. So that's why we have the Black Nurses Association. That's why we have other, you know, affinity groups because we were literally pushed out. Now those, that, that's just one, another portion of all that. Again, um, the diversity and equity, no, we, we didn't have all of that. Um, so uh, because the ma- nurses, ma- majority of nurses and nationally are white nurses, um, it's just like anywhere else when you have the majority of one group, you know, kind of leading. So let me get just a little history real quick and um, at, not to bore you, but just have you heard of Florence Nightingale? She's like, like the mother of nursing. I have totally heard of Florence Nightingale, but I definitely wouldn't okay. have been able to tell you she was a nurse. So oh, okay. like the name exists for me, but I was okay. like, oh, word, how she fit. Yeah, yeah. So please, I am intrigued. Yeah. Well, just really quickly, Florence Nightingale, she's considered the mother of nursing. She was um, a nurse during the Crimean War. Um, um, but a nurse that we don't talk about um, was a black nurse, um, Mary Seacole, also in the Crimean War. She does not get hardly any acknowledgement. She was Jamaican born, actually, but she did the same thing that you know Florence Nightingale did. And so, if you think about Florence Nightingale in the realm of nursing, she's literally everything revolves around her. We have the Florence Nightingale Pledge. We have, you know, Florence Nightingale, she created, and she did do a lot. Don't get me wrong. She definitely contributed to the nursing, um, to the nursing field. But there were also other nurses that contributed to the nursing field that were nurses of color. But it's white-centered. It's centered around Florence Nightingale. So that's literally how nursing still is revolving around white-centered ideologies. Um, So... You know, even when we're, you know, learning in our curriculum, it ain't a bunch of representation. I I tell people when I came out of nursing school, I literally thought just because I was black that I was going to, you know, I was more susceptible to everything just because of like the color of my skin, not considering all the other things that play a role and why black people are, you know, uh, black infant mortality is higher, black maternal death, uh, black people get high blood pressure, all those things. And that sounds so negative, but it's like, Nobody wants to take under consideration or hadn't been taken under consideration why that actually was going on. And so we've been programmed to think, dang, just because I'm Black, I'm about to get this, that, diabetes, 60% more likely for this and da-da-da-da. And it's like, we've been programmed. So one of, again, another one of my goals, and even when I'm teaching, is something new that they've come out with, the social determinants of health are the conditions in the environment where people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship that affect health and functioning and quality of life outcomes and all of the things. 
I'm incorporating that into my conversations because I think that's very important to understand as we talk about health and why there are certain, you know, people more susceptible to certain things. Well, it's because I live in a food desert and I don't have access to to um, healthy foods or I don't have access to um, whatever you deem is healthy, but even fresh, fresh produce, let's just say that. Um, I have to drive miles out for, you know, for uh, uh, bananas that look fresh, you know? So <clears throat> there's a lot of things that, you know, we know redlining, we know gentrification, all of these play a role in our health, mental health, physical health, all the things. So I know I deviated from where you were talking about, but um, yeah. No, let's follow that deviation because so much of what you were saying is what was coming up for me. This idea that I was reading when I was in school for therapy and social cultural class, right? We're looking at all the ways in which the social determinants play a factor into health outcomes across the board, yada, yada. And there are still to this day, they will do a, a, a like a, um, a survey or research around doctors perception of black people's mm. ability to feel pain or how much black people feel pain. And to know that there are literal doctors to a very high percentage that genuinely believe that black people do not experience pain the same way as white people or other races. So when we start talking about black maternal health mortality rates, when a woman is saying, this is not right, Mm-hmm. this doesn't feel something is wrong and they are not listened to and they no, it's fine. Or this is how it's supposed to be. And in just all of these things, when people come in with health problems and they're saying something is not right and they're dismissed and they're sent home, this hurts this pain. Oh no. Like these, the, the, not just white centered, and when we're talking about white, you know, I'll speak for me. I think Deza would agree. It's not the color white people. It is whiteness as an idea, whiteness as a hierarchy. And when it's only around these ideas, and then you try to squeeze in your understanding of a different race that does not ascribe the same way, it doesn't work. And so then you wonder why people don't want to go to the doctor. Same reason they don't want to go to a therapist. Because these systems have these long held histories of disregarding, of pushing out, of minimizing, of criminal criminalizing mm-hmm. all of these things. It just, it's, it, it, it gets crazy making. And so you have people who you're encouraging people to go to the doctor, go to the doctor, go to the doctor, but you have an awareness that the doctor doesn't always literally have the capability to treat you they can only treat what they're presenting with the lens that they've been given. And that lens has not taken you into account in research and in treatment modalities and in bringing in wisdom from people who live in these bodies. Yeah, man, I get it. Make me want to cancel my next doctor appointment. I'm not, I'm just saying y'all. Okay. I was going to say, wait a minute. (laughs) I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. No, but I I think it is the awareness to come in. And so with the empowerment that you're giving people, to say it is okay to advocate for your needs. It is okay to actually tell someone this is what is happening. I think that's a whole new language for a lot of people. It's it's okay to interview your doctors. If you go to one and you're not feeling that doctor, it's okay to move on. It's okay to, you know, um, switch, you know, nurses. It's okay to ask for a different, it's it's okay. All of that. I'm here to say it is okay. And it's not, it shouldn't be taken personal. It's you getting what you need because um because you're you're the you're the person in charge, honestly, at the end of the day. Um you are and you work together with the healthcare team, not you know, it's not the other way around. So um so yeah, I I, I think that it is a different, it is a shift in mindset um, of, of power. And I'm of the people ask like, so Deza, what do you think is the way to, you know, how do we change all this? To be honest with you, I don't think that a system that was never built 
to support us is going to be able to be changed. I'm in the bring it down, start over type of movement. And I hope, you know, that's okay to say here, but mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I, it, I, I can do what I can do. Like I said, with I can health and with black nurse network. And of course I'll continue to do those things, but until we t- honestly tear this stuff down and then build it to where it's supposed to be equitable and all those things, diverse and all of that, just kind of, we're just kind of, you know, I think we are still moving the needle, but I do think that there's so much work to do that it's it's just going to be, a, it's, it's a, it is a challenge. Mm-hmm. I feel that about a lot of systems for sure. And as you were talking, I mean, it's the same thing. I've, I know I've said this before, but this was a long time ago, probably one of my first episodes, but I want to echo what Deza just said about doctors and nurses with therapists. You know, the therapeutic relationship is often viewed through a medical lens, the medical model, the medical model lens, which is I am going to go see an expert who has all the expertise and they are going to tell me what to do and I have to do what they say. And I know that there are a lot of us therapists who work really hard on an individual basis to remove that hierarchy and to be shoulder to shoulder and say, we are a team in this process. But I just want to reiterate, please interview your therapist. Um, (laughs) It has to be a good fit. This is an investment in yourself. And so, you know, if it's not working now, I do advise for people, especially if you've seen someone longer than the consultation or first couple of visits, have the conversation, be honest, so that they can be aware Perhaps you, you know, you might be sharing something that they, no one has ever shared with them before and we can then make adjustments or not, but at least be aware, right? Sometimes I realize Mm -hmm. that my methods and how I go about it are not helpful for people. And I'm not going to change that because that's how I do it. It's not that it's wrong. It just doesn't fit them. But sometimes Mm -hmm. I might have done some things that just have not taken into account things that I, that I don't know. And so that I need to grow as a therapist as well. And that's very helpful, But once you start with someone, I think one of the biggest things that I help people understand when I'm able to walk with them, whether it's through individual therapy or working in relationships or my classes or whatever, is you get to change your mind. Mm. And if we go back to one of your very first statements when you came Mm. on, like Mm. so many of us did not grow up in family systems and social structures that taught us we could change our minds. And even if we did, so what your mind has changed, but your body going to keep doing <laughs> what you said you were going to do. So to empower a person to go a yes at one point doesn't have to mean a yes forever. A no at mm. one point doesn't have to mean a no forever. That can be one of the most empowering things that we do to say this worked for a while, but now it's time to try something new. And I, I love that that is part of the work you do with folks to help them have access to opportunity, choice and autonomy in their health care. Is there anything that I didn't ask that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you want to share and leave with my listeners or any parting thoughts? Um, I will, I will like, would like to say um, how important your work is um, in a, like merged with mine, because like I was saying, chronic illness is um, we always think about whatever case we think about the specialty physician perhaps so like if you're having you know uh like diabetes you think about the endocrinologist the primary care but not often enough do we think about the mental health therapist and the counseling component and how important that is because for for multiple things but you know let's let's talk about how difficult this chronic condition diagnosis might be let's talk about how motivated you are to change and what are those things that might be in the way of, you know, you making behavior changes uh, that might be sustainable? Um, let's talk about your, how are you feeling with your particular physician? There's just so many dynamics, um, so many things to discuss that I think are so relevant to the to the work that you do that could help um, advance our patient population as well. So again, thank you for everything that you do. Um, and I now make sure that that, um, that is a piece that I I could talk about is, are you talking to somebody, a mental health therapist, um, accountability partner, somebody that, you know, um, you trust and that, um, may or may not even be clinical, but just being able to, um, to have conversations with healthy, healthy conversations. So 
So yes, love that. I wanted to so it, that. Thank you. Yes. And I appreciate that very much. One of the biggest lies I think um, we've ever been taught is that we're going through it alone. Mm. We're the only one. No one will understand. It is, it is a big lie that has built a huge hole in people's capacity to be relational, communal, and heal in those spaces. So what you said is for me so true. There's not a single experience or emotion that anyone could ever have that no one else has ever had. And when Mm -hmm. we realize that, then it becomes the shame of the thing that often is not even ours to bear. We can start to let that go a little bit so that we can talk about it. The number of times I have said a thing and people have gone, oh my God, you too? Across the board, no matter what it's about. That that began to let me know. And now the work that I do, real, helping people realize you're not in this alone. So I love that. Dieza, if people are like, I can, but I need support. <laughs> or they have questions for you or just want to get in touch with you for any reason. How can people find you? Yeah, thank you. Again, my name is Diesa Dorsey. Um, I can be found at www.icanhealthllc.com. Um, I'm also able to be emailed at ICANManual at gmail.com. Um, and I'm on social media, um, Facebook and Instagram, LinkedIn at um, ICANHealth. Love it. I appreciate your time today and everything that you brought uh, to the listeners. I appreciate you so much. Yes. Thank you so much again for this opportunity and for everything that you're doing. Thank you. I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who does all the music. Let me pause. Cause see, I get into this thing and it feels, I know people are like, Oh, it's the end of the podcast. Let me stop. Listen, if you listen <laughs> to this podcast, especially if you listen to it, listen to it regularly and you value the contributions of this uh, podcast, I am seriously encouraging you to head over to my Patreon and support the creative process and uh, the work that I do. So many free and accessible things that I offer, my podcast, my Therapy Thursdays over on TikTok. I'm on there several times a week, my self-care Sundays, free workshops. You know, I'm paying for that (laughs) one way or another. So if you want to support, I did want to let folks know I have that Patreon. In addition to supporting this very important work, there is Patreon exclusive uh, content that you get just for supporting me and labors of love. So I want to throw that out there. Now I want to give a special shout out to my nephew, Trey Angel, who provides all the music for the labors of love podcast, my producer, Jay Sugg of instant classic media and you, my listeners. Listen, I love y'all. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget if you have a suggestion for content or guests, head over to my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. Uh, let me know there. We're on all the major social media outlets. My YouTube channel houses all of the Therapy Thursday videos. And don't forget, if you haven't already, give us that five-star rating, write a review, and share the podcast with your loved ones and your friends. Until we connect again, you all be well.